Welcome to Equinox, where Rob and I are striking the balance between the light and the dark. This is episode 28. My name is Joseph Darnell, and I'm joined by the doc and my friend, Robert Carter. Hello, Rob. Hello, Joe. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing fantastic. Spent my day literally doing nothing but reading scientific papers. Lovely. It's a long time since I did that. Uh, Science Magazine just came out with a whole set of papers on this brand new multi-million dollar 10-year program called the Genotype Expression Project. Interesting. And they put like seven papers out. And I literally laid it from 8 a.m. till almost 6. Only these papers all day long. Because what they're doing is they're cracking into the super complexity of the genome. The things that the Human Genome Project couldn't do almost 20 years ago, they're finally able to do now. And that is to say what this letter in the genome does. Interesting. What does that letter in the genome do? Not just does it exist, it's what is this function? And it's really, really amazing and fun stuff. And they can tell differences between men and women and differences between African Americans and European Americans. No. And from one cell type to another, from one, like the brain is different than the liver. And how this letter affects things in the brain but has nothing to do with what happens in the liver. liver. And that's just awesome. crazy, complicated, cool stuff. But it took many millions of dollars to start figuring it out. Yeah, you got to think that with all the letters you were saying, how many letters are there? There's really just a lot of different combinations, right? There's not too many letters. What do you mean letters? There's a significantly low number of letters. Then how did they identify? Is it a combination of the letters, like basically introducing a word that means this has to do with your liver? Well, they didn't actually know until they they started experiments. And what they did was they took nearly a thousand cadavers. And right after the person died, they, you know, tissue donors or organ donors, they sampled all different parts in the body. And then all they did was they looked at, okay, in this organ, what RNAs are being produced? That's it. Wow. And they had the genome sequence for the individual and all the RNAs being produced. And they said, okay, well, in the liver, this RNA is produced, but in the spleen, this RNA is not produced. Oh, the difference is that letter right there, it must be something dealing with liver function and not spleen function or men versus women or African-American versus European-American. It's just really, really cool. How long could this project take, you think? I mean, grant you, given the size of the human genome project, I mean, this is this is like really meta stuff. This is inside baseball for genes. Absolutely. This is super meta. And that's what it took. They promised. They, I mean, the scientists convinced the U.S. government to sequence the human genome. Hey, U.S. government, why don't you spend $3 billion because we will cure disease? Oh, yeah, of course. And it wasn't true. It was completely wrong. <laughs> Whoops. Absolutely 100% wrong. No genes led to the, the curing of disease. And they said, oh, if we sequence a genome, we'll understand how it works. Yeah, 20 years later and many more millions of dollars, we're finally starting to understand how it works. <laughs> well, you got to start somewhere 25 years later. That's right. <laughs> so that was my day today. How was your day today? Really good. I'm super duper tired. Next to never do I stay up late talking to the wife like we did. We usually are timely in bed and get up on a routine basis and the same kind of schedule. But last night we just ended up talking and talking and talking. So then, uh, you know, it's a school night and that we couldn't really help it. We just couldn't help ourselves. And then this morning we got up early, so I'm pretty tired, but I cannot be tired. Uh, what day is tomorrow? Tomorrow's the day. 
Tomorrow is the fifteenth, right? Yeah. So when this is going out, uh, going to be going out, it's uh, Wednesday, but we're recording Monday. Yeah. And tomorrow, I got to bring my A game because I I am a technology enthusiast, and Apple has a great big event going on tomorrow. So I'm going to be paying attention to their live stream, and I'm looking forward to that. Really? I'll probably will get my wife a new iPhone this uh, this season. So. If they have the new iPhone this year. Is she part of the Borg yet? Oh, yeah. She was discovered by the Borg a few years before, you know, we met. And when uh, we found course, each other in the Unimind, it was wonderful. <laughs> such, a ro- such a romantic story. <laughs> we actually are sort of an all-Apple family clan. I started with my first Mac when I was seven years old. And, wow. Uh, I had a PC for a stint for five years, and I've used professionally PCs, but they're just not my thing. I prefer the Macs. I can honestly say I have seen Macs, the early ones, in school I taught at in the 90s. And one time at Georgia Tech, I walked up to a computer cluster to try to register for classes, and it was Mac-based. And I stared at the screen. I had no idea what to do, so I went to a different computer cluster and registered there. (laughs) And that's my experience with Macs. Wow. I really was intrigued by PCs early on because our neighbor had a PC and he built it at home. And that was a fun machine because he bootlegged all kinds of fun things. He would play these computer games and I was like, how'd you get that? I can't get that on our Mac. You know, we bought everything legally that we used on our Macs for many years. Yeah. Yeah. My first computer was a Commodore 64. And that was, to this day, the best computer I've ever owned. That's an 80s machine, right? Oh, I loved it. Yeah, because I've read about it, but it's been a while. It was so user-friendly. Uh, yeah, it's a classic. And it was so, I mean, it was slow as molasses. And, you know, I had a tape drive for, for data storage. <laughs> and then I, I, I splurged and got a disk drive, a five and a half inch floppy, five and a quarter floppy. And man, I could put Centipede in there and wait 10 minutes for Centipede to load. <laughs> You had to actually grow your centipedes and put them into the, the centipede drive <laughs> to load. If they got squished, you had to clean it out. But the computer was such that the programmer's reference guide had an entire schematic of the motherboard. And as I'm staring at it, I realized that there's a reset pin that wasn't used. If that reset pin went to ground, I could reset it without having to turn it on and off. Oh, oh. so I took a soldering iron. I melted a hole in the side of my computer. You did in the not. case, <laughs> and I literally soldered a wire onto the processor, which you're not supposed to do. But I didn't know you could, you know, heat kill. But I didn't kill it. I soldered a wire onto the processor, ran it to a momentary switch I bought at Radio Shack, and soldered it to a, the ground. And sure enough, boop, push a button, and I could reset my computer. And all my friends wanted me to do it, so I had I didn't charge them anything, but I had this little cottage free industry of of soldering reset switches onto Commodore 64s. Awesome. <laughs> I also built a robot hand with my Commodore 64. Oh, wow. There was a, a user port in the back. You know, it was, you could see the edge of the, the PCB, the board. It, it, yeah. And yeah. on the top and the bottom of it, there were these metal things. And so I was working in my dad's factory. At this time, I was working in the, um, the shipping department. And we had the, the, the giant stapler where you could staple the bottoms of boxes with these, these copper staples. Right. And I, I, I made a bunch of staples, and I cut them. I cut one of the bent parts off, and then I, I put a whole bunch of them in a row on the top and bottom of a piece of oak and put rubber on top of that and then 
two more pieces of oak and and two screws and I screwed them all down. So I had these, the, the bent part of the staples were like touching each other and I could slide that onto the motherboard and I had connections to all those pins on the user port and I wired it up to one of my model train switches and I could toggle it open, close, open, close, open, close using the power on the motherboard to, to power the 12 volt solenoid in the, uh, in the model train switch. Wow. And I wire, I worked up a, um, a balsa wood thing. It, it was more like a wrench. It just opened and closed. It, it wasn't a hand, but I could grab things with it. <laughs> Nicely done. <laughs> it was the coolest thing ever, except, except when sliding that thing onto the pins, if you got a little bit to the left and the right, you short out all the pins at the same time. <laughs> right right if you got it like in between the, the metal parts on the, the board you'd connect all of the metal things including positive and negative and sure enough after two three times i blew apart my uh, my computer <laughs> but it was worth it <laughs> so i built a awesome. robot hand <laughs> that is classic oh well <laughs> you, you don't happen to have a picture of your computer setup or anything you tinkered on in those old days that'd be awesome to see we didn't have cameras man yeah if we had a camera, it would have been a, a 110, maybe a Polaroid, but po- Polaroid pictures from back then, all the reds are gone and they just look, they look terrible now. True. They're all faded. Yeah. My mom and dad did the same thing. Yeah. So no, no pictures. In the age before we could record things easily and all the cheap photography that was coming out is completely worthless today. It wasn't like people taking slide photography. What do you mean by slide photography? You mean like... Well, if you had a slide from back then, it would still be good today. Okay, yeah. But if you had any other form of photograph, it's just, it's just worthless, the, the negatives or the print. Yep. I remember some of the best photos that they ever had were just rare yep. and mo- pictures that mom and dad had. Like a funny thing, a lot of the old black and white photos have aged better than anything out of the 80s. Oh, Yeah. Oh yeah, I've got some family photographs on tin. Oh, those yeah, those can hold up. One of them on the, I got this picture of all these guys. One of them is my great 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 grandfather. I figured it out. Took me a while to figure out. Oh, that guy with the big ears. Okay, I know him. But is all these guys with the bowler hats and suspenders, not t-shirts, but not long sleeve shirts either. Nice. Yeah. And they're standing in front of a beach, which is just the backdrop. But on the back, in pencil, it says Rockaway Beach, eighteen eighty eight. Bam. Oh, nice. And it still looks. Looks okay. I have a picture of my great great grandfather from like eighteen, probably around eighteen seventy. It's not the exact year. This is not the guy who made the face on the tree, is it? No, no that that was my dad and his cousin. Oh, okay, okay, right, of course they did that on the tree across the street from my great great grandfather's house. Cool, you know, small world, and it's so neat because that photograph shows up really good detail. He kind of resembles my younger brother. Really? Yeah, interesting. All right, so let's get to a bit of science. You wanted to talk about, before we get to the main subject, this interesting story about Venus. Well, it's because it follows directly into the subject that you chose. Yeah, this is bizarre stuff. I love this kind of stuff about the planets. Yeah, and this is weird, but you wanted to talk about why things rot. And so I spent a long time studying the chemistry of decomposition, and hopefully we're not going to get into too many big words here, but you know how things rot, why things rot, we're going to talk about that. But today, I read this article about Venus, and there's, a, there's some things when you're looking at like spectra of light uh, coming out of things, there's some chemicals that have very distinct emission or absorption lines. Right. And one of the very distinct things is called phosphine. 
which is a phosphorus stuck to three hydrogen atoms. It's pH three. Extremely simple molecule. And they detected a very clear signal of phosphine about 50 miles high in the Venusian atmosphere. Venusian. Nice. <laughs> Venusian. I love that word. That's a great word. <laughs> but this is bizarre because phosphine on Earth comes from biological processes. So what are they expecting to happen on Venus that could produce that kind of chemical? That's the mystery. There's nothing that they know of, at least, that can produce it. Now, it it also is produced on Jupiter in some incredibly high-energy storms with giant lightning and things like that. But Venus doesn't have anything like that. So it doesn't have the high energy of Jupiter, and it doesn't have the biology of Earth. What's making pH 3? And the strangest thing is, phosphine smells like rotting fish and garlic. That is so weird. So the clouds of Venus smell faintly of rotting fish. It's such a lifeless <laughs> planet. It's so desolate. And if anything, just kind of disgusting. Like, I remember everything I've heard about Venus, it sounds like, you know, it'd be, you know, Jupiter has the constant storms and it would be yeah, uh, just a, a wreck to be in the atmosphere. Yeah. But on Venus, it's a, it's sort of like a milder case of that where it's just so nasty. It would ki- kill you so quickly. Yeah. So what is it? Isn't it over 900 degrees Fahrenheit? Something like that. It's, you know, lead would melt yeah. in your hand if you're standing on the ground on Venus. But here's something really, really amazingly cool science-wise. NASA has all these ideas that are floating around about you know how how to get to other planets, how to make a space station on other planets. Well, you know, obviously Mars is considered, but so is Venus. Could you have a station somehow up in the atmosphere, like away from the worst part of it? Boom! Yes, like a cloud city. Yes, at a hundred miles in altitude, it's one atmosphere of pressure. And you're above the sulfuric acid clouds. Ooh. So you could literally be outside and all you would need was a face mask so you could get oxygen. That is awesome. Wow. Now, I don't know what the humidity is. So I don't know if you want to expose your eyeballs. And I don't know if, if there's, I don't think there's oxygen. Ooh, yeah. And I don't think you want to expose your eyeballs to a non oxygen environment, but you don't need a pressure suit. A really simple face mask at atmospheric pressure. <laughs> And you could be on Venus outside in like, you know, on an airship or something like that. Curious. Could you theoretically be able to smell the things through your face mask well, in that condition then? Would you be able to smell something in the, in the air? The stuff they detected is only about halfway up to that altitude. So you couldn't get down there to smell it. And it's mixed in with the sulfuric acid clouds. Oh, okay. So, but the thing is also, it's only at like... 10 to 20 parts per billion. And that's right. I had to, I looked this up. I wanted to know what the edge of detectability of the human nose was to this stuff called phosphine. And the answer is best. The best human nose can barely detect it at the maximum level we see it in, in the Venus atmosphere. So essentially, it wouldn't have a smell, but it wouldn't matter because the sulfuric acid would eat your nose smelly parts out anyway as soon as you try to take a whiff. Because sulfuric acid also doesn't have a smell, but you still smell it because it reacts with your mucosal membranes and starts decomposing your nose and the decomposition products have a smell. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> 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 Woo. 
Yikes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's just, so all these people are, 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 are speculating. Is there life on Venus? Well, the answer is no way. There's no way there's life on Venus. Well, just because something smells like plant-based material or something, <laughs> it, it is tantalizing to consider. But they can't figure out a, a mechanical, chemical, geological way to make this on Venus. And we know that life makes it. We know the bacteria that decompose organic matter produces stuff. So it's a giant mystery. But here's what I suspect. I highly suspect that it's geological. If not, this next greatest answer, no matter how remote the possibility is, is that, yeah, it's bacteria that came from Earth. Oh, wow. Because we know we've had some pretty big meteorite impacts on Earth, and they have ejected material, yeah. which would have reached the moon, which would have deorbited, which could have fallen in toward Venus. That is awesome. <laughs> now, space radiation is sterilizing the ultraviolet light to cosmic rays. You're not going to get life really surviving unless it's in a big chunk of rock deep inside the rock yeah no and then the entry heat into venus is going to be extreme and you know it's 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 i mean it's almost impossible but there is a source of life on earth and the solar system is not sterile because of earth yeah yeah that's just a cool story that is yeah you threw out something that you were talking about about space tell me about that more because you only hinted at it i want to know what what that was yeah, so I listened to a ton of podcasts, and the other day I was, I think I was out like cleaning my grill or mowing the grass, something, and I heard this episode of the show called 20,000 Hertz, and it's really good. I discovered the show not too long ago. My wife took an interest in it, and she just went back and listened to all of the archive, and she highly rated it. So I went back and checked out some of the episodes just based on subject. And there was an episode called Space. And in it, they proposed what would sound be like on the various planets. If you could be on the surface of Mercury, you would hear nothing. Because atmosphere. But if you could put your ear down to the surface, you might could hear quakes and reverberations through the rock. All right, fair enough. <laughs> and then they t- went on to Venus and said how the atmosphere is just so thick that... Sound travels through it, but it would sound kind of like sound traveling through water, perhaps. Cool. And you would have a and hard time distinguishing what direction the sound was coming from. It's hard, it's hard oh, to tell sound yeah, direction huh. underwater because it reaches your two ears almost simultaneously because it travels so fast. So your brain can't detect direction Ooh. like it can in air because there's enough of a delay from your left ear to your right ear that you can tell what direction a sound is coming <laughs> from. That is wild. See, I always assumed that I could tell the direction of a sound, but just because, you know, the sound's coming over from the right and it reaches my right ear and it's, it's louder on my right side. Well, but I, you're right. That would also contribute to it. Yeah. But for distant sounds, the, the intensity difference from one ear to the other is tiny. Because, yeah, sound does decrease yeah, with distance, okay. but when you're far enough away, you know, if something is a mile away, the difference between your two ears is such a small percentage of a mile that the intensity doesn't drop off as it goes past your head. Well, so, and then when they moved on from Venus, they also talk about planet Earth. All right. And I suddenly realized what an incredible thing that we have here because the conditions are just right. That sound can do what it does here, that we can enjoy sound the way that it travels through the air here. And yeah, I don't think I would have ever thought of that. 
because we just take for granted that this is the way that sound is supposed to be. The way it is on planet Earth is the way that theoretically it would also sound like on Mars, but it wouldn't. No, I think there'd probably be almost no sound on Mars because the air is so thin. And all yeah. the, the Jovian planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune, Uranus, would be real thick. And then Pluto doesn't have an atmosphere. Wow. That's so weird. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, because because you just take for granted sound that even when you see Star Wars and Star Trek, that they have sounds in space, and we know better than to do that now, then we want to colonize, you know, the moon or Mars, but then we have to account for no matter what you do, even if you had a high-tech way of having a, a, a habitat, you still got to account for, well, how are you going to have sound? Then, uh, and you could do that inside of a habitat, but if you wanted to hear something outside, you're not going to be able to hear it. I heard a uh, a clip from NPR this morning or maybe last night, and they were trying to mimic how the Hagia Sophia sounded when it was built many, many, many centuries ago. It was the largest audience hall on Earth when it was built, and which was Constantinople, now it's Istanbul. <laughs> um, but they they took. <laughs> they took uh, orchestral pieces from that time period, a cappella. So guys going, and people, and they, they had those people sing it, and then they use audio engineering to amplify it in such a way that it was in that giant cavernous hall and what it would have sounded like. It was really, really cool. That is awesome. Yeah. I'm going to look that up. And huh. I've got to put it in the show notes, so i got to look it up too, Arg. <laughs> <laughs> Well then we we need to get to our we need to get to our discussion then. You want to get to the main topic? Yeah. Time is burning. Discussion is why things rot or how things rot. How decomposition works. So what happened was what what brought this idea to mind was the other day I was cleaning something in the bathroom and this idea just popped into my head and I thought I need to ask Rob. Rob, how do things rot? Why do things rot? <laughs> so it is a scientific subject and oh yeah i remember as a child probably my earliest memory of dealing with rot not waste oh by the way we might want to say to everyone if you're on your lunch break you might want to you know listen to this later <laughs> oh oh yes uh, yes <clears throat> this is gonna be gross but this is also an incredibly important topic because it impinges upon fossils and the fossil record and what you might expect in the fossil record versus what you find and it's hugely controversial so when they found tyrannosaurus rex leg bones and now a lot of other uh species of dinosaurs also including ichthyosaurs and things like that with non-fossilized material inside the bones how do you answer that because we can study rotting today we've been doing it since the 1800s Mm-hmm. categorizing things examining you know doing controlled experiments seeing what happens where and how and and when you see stuff inside a dinosaur bone even evidence of proteins and maybe dna whoa wait a second so there's this thing in science it's a science of taphonomy t-a-p-h taphonomy it's a study of how organisms decay and become fossilized so your question of how things rot is actually a lot broader than just the chemistry oh, of, yeah. you know, I put an apple on my counter and it starts turning green. Right. This is really cool. 
And even Charles Darwin in The Origin of Species, he said, no organism wholly soft can be preserved. Well, he was fantastically wrong. Good point, yeah. But it was his view that the fossil record accumulates very slowly. Therefore, anything that was soft would rot away before it became fossilized. And he was just plain wrong. Right, then it would presumably just have to be the tough bones that could be a fossil. Exactly. Yeah. But we've got fossil jellyfish and fossil worms and fossil mm. flowers even and raindrops. Don't we also have like fossilized examples of like fur and feathers? Maybe not as much, yes. but we have some. And that yes, awesome. and dung. We have thousands wow. upon thousands of pieces <laughs> of fossilized dinosaur dung to the point where we know what species of dinosaur they came from and what they were eating because we can see the remains of what they're eating. That's so weird. How does dung get preserved? Right. We have somebody at the office that has one of those he's showing me. <laughs> yeah, we do. So, taphonomy, the study of rotting things becoming fossilized, is fascinating. In fact, I just read an article um, uh, just last Friday about a thing called the Battle of Tolentz. And this is not a battle you've ever read about in history books because there's oh, no huh. historical record for this. Oh, it was an okay. accidental huh. discovery. And it's, it's literally northern Germany, almost to the North Sea, and near the border between Germany and Poland. There's a place called Tolentz, and there's a little, a little river going through a marshy area. And people found a bone. And then they found a spear point embedded in a bone, a bronze spear point. And they said, oh, and they started excavating. And within nine square meters, they found evidence of 130 dead bodies. Oh, wow. That is incredible. And nobody knows anything about it. That is crazy. This is bronze age. There's no history. Nobody thought there was major civilization that far north this early. No one thought there were major towns. Nobody thought there were any sort of organized kingships or anything like that. Not even remotely. And yet, here we have a battle where, you know, may, what, maybe 10% of soldiers on either side might get killed during a battle before the other side runs away. And they're estimating mm -hmm. that, you know, a couple thousand people were involved in a battle at minimum. And it looks like there was an old pilings for a bridge here. And so it was like a, a crossing point of a bridge. And there's these two sides that were warring. And there were horses. And there were bows and arrows. And there were spears and wooden cudgels. And there were swords and bronze armor. I mean, this is really amazing stuff. And all of this stuff is preserved because maybe the people who landed on ground didn't get preserved. But there was a lot of mud in this battle, and people that fell in the river or in the marshy area didn't get picked over, and their bones didn't decay, and they got buried in peat, and now we can dig them out. And the horse is there, too. Oh, and two of the warriors were women. That is fascinating. This is crazy. Huh. What culture yeah. is this? But the study of taphonomy and archaeology and fossilization is just amazing. And so here's a battle with no historical record, and yet clear as day it happened. And it has totally changed our understanding of Northern European history. <laughs> it's not supposed to be there. And yet there it is. Oh, and here, well, the reason I was reading this is because I was getting to the genetics of it. I knew about this battle. And now people have done genetic studies, and they found out there are no genetic differences amongst the soldiers. 
They thought wow. maybe it was an invader from far away, or it was you know different people groups fighting. No, it was one people group with no genetic differences. So maybe like you know the king died and two brothers are fighting or something like that. Right, but the important thing to gather from that that detail is that it hadn't rotted away so thoroughly that you couldn't make an observation from the genes. Yes. You population level studies the DNA from things buried under river mud. <laughs> totally amazingly fun and cool. That is Okay, so wow. let's use that as a launching point. What happens to a body or a cow or a mouse or a dog, human? What happens when an organism of that size dies? Who cares about bacteria, right? You know, water bears and, and little teeny things. That, that's not important. But a large thing, when it starts to rot, what actually happens? In general, it seems like exposure to the elements, you know, in layman's terms, means <laughs> it just starts to decay. It starts to uh, fall apart. And that, that's where it gets weird, though, is like I, I know from how it smells and how it changes color and how putrid it gets and that it attracts flies that it just gets nasty, but I don't really understand why it goes through that metamorphosis. Got it. And we're going to do exactly that. For example, I know a thing or two about the aging process of things like scotch in, in wooden barrels, you know, in the aging process and getting some of the flavor out of the wood. And I get that, how it's absorbing some of that that smoky flavor that might be used at times and other times just a great wood that has a good t- flavor to it. But I don't really understand why as things rot that they smell the way they do, unless it's just a chemical reaction and some of it is evaporating. <laughs> the whole thing is kind of mysterious. Okay. I got all those things on the list, every single one of those things. But first let me ask you a question. Yes, sir. Have you heard that after a person dies, their fingernails keep growing? Yeah. And other things keep working, too, for a little while, too, like hair. Okay. This is an urban myth. Really? Yeah. Certain cells do keep on trucking for, you know, minutes to hours, at most a day or two, after the brain stops working and the heart stops beating. Because, you know, biochemistry will keep on going un- all by itself for a while. It'll, it'll fall, start falling apart really quickly, but there are a couple of chemical reactions that will keep on going inside a cell. But fingernails huh. don't keep on growing. That They'll grow too slowly for you to notice. Your body will start rotting away beforehand. What it is is as the body starts drying out, which is one of the first things that starts happening, is water is evaporating from the body, the skin shrinks. And as it pulls back, it looks like the fingernails have grown, but they haven't grown. Oh... That is interesting. That makes sense. Huh. That is <laughs> kind of d- disturbing. <laughs> it is really just, dis- and the rest of this is going to be disturbing. And that, I mean, I started researching this and I get into end of life discussions. What happens when a person dies physically to the body and the brain and the heart as death is happening. And wow, it, it was, in fact, there's a link in the, in the show notes that, that I've added about that. It was a hard read. But good to know also, because death is not painful. Well, I didn't know that. And it's in- it is interesting to note that basically all living creatures rot. Yes. 
Except for... <laughs> yeah. Coral? <laughs> Mao Zedong and Vladimir Lenin. <laughs> now, uh, I've been to Red Square and I've been to Tiananmen Square. And I've been right in front of their mausoleums. And I did not go inside. I didn't care to see a waxy dead guy in a right. glass box. And I've right. told yeah. that Mao wasn't preserved nearly as well as Lenin. <laughs> Yuck. <laughs> yeah. But their bodies are still there if you want to go see them. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> okay. Another, another question. Okay. Mm-hmm. Why do apples turn brown? And how long does it take before they start turning brown? Not long at all. Like, oh man, maybe it's, okay. Is that rotting? It's would it be considered like over ripening at first and then it turns to rotting? Well, if you cut open an apple and there's a, a brown spot, yeah, but after you cut an apple, it starts turning brown within a couple of minutes. Is that called rotting? Is it dangerous to eat? Well, no, is there something wrong with it? Is it unsafe? You know, a little brown in an avocado or a banana never hurt anyone. Yeah, bananas I can handle. Avocados always cut out the brown parts. If it's there originally, but once it starts turning brown, right. this is not rotting. This is not bacteria eating the apple, the banana, the avocado. It's actually an enzyme in the fruit called polyphenol oxidase that is reacting with iron-containing phenols, oxidizing the iron. It's literally rusting. Oh, Wow. Huh. Because iron doesn't like to be in a, I don't know, plus two state. It wants to be in a plus three state. Oxygen rips off another electron from it. Does it accelerate the rotting process? Does it get to the rotting faster? No. Because of, because of that transition? Huh. No, it's just the iron oxidizing in front of our very hmm. eyes. And so, even though I don't eat brown fruit, no. Now that Never. I know, think about it, there's nothing wrong with that. If I cut it up five minutes ago, it, there's nothing wrong with it. It's true. It's just kind of, our brains say, ew. But if you add lemon juice or lime juice to your fruit salad, your apples won't turn brown. Hmm. Because the acid denatures the polyphenol oxidase enzyme. That is awesome. And it can't operate, and therefore the apple doesn't turn <laughs> It's really cool. So, rotting, oxidation, decomposition. There's a lot of different things happening and we got to get our brain straight. Right. But you asked about literally decomposition. You start talking about it getting all nasty and stinky and everything like that. Well, there are actually two distinct processes when something starts to decompose. The first is called autolysis or autolysis. Lysis means breaking, auto-self. So it's self-eating. (laughs) <laughs> the enzymes inside the cell will start eating the cell. Oh, interesting. And there are lysosomes in your cell. The lysosomes, your cell will shove things into the lysosome to get de- digested. But if that lysosome breaks open, it'll digest the cell. And then the cellular stuff will spill out into the neighboring cells. And it's just this whole liquefaction that's happening without bacteria. It's happening all by itself. Autolysis or autolysis. And then there's a process of putrefaction. And putrefaction is part auto and part bacteria. It all depends. And hmm. the rate of these things Because happening, of the different kind of substance or thing that is rotting, I suppose. Yeah, and some, things, some chemicals break down real quickly and some take a long time. Some take bacteria and some will happen all by itself. But think about, yeah, have you ever had aged beef? 
You go to an expensive oh, yeah. steakhouse, right? Aged right. beef. You know what that means? Uh, disgusting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> should, they yeah. cut it out of the cow and they put it in a refrigerator for weeks. <laughs> and then they'll scrape it off <clears throat> and fry it up and give it to you. And it's yummy and tender because right. of autolysis. Sometimes because of bacterial action, but not usually. It's usually because the... Uh, the, the, the meat is tenderizing itself as it's very slowly digesting because of its own enzymes. I've heard that they scrape off the green stuff. I don't know if that's true. As in, you know, there's mold or fungi growing on it. That, that sounds like not the right answer. Right. I, I don't want them to leave it on there, but I wouldn't put it past them if they're going to serve it to you in the first place. And they're going to cook it, right? So what harm yeah, can yeah. it cause? Well, I don't know, man. The raw beef is yummy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it's all flesh, whether it's cooked or not, right? I have had people who really tried to convince me to try a, a rare steak. And I, I went to a yum. fancy seafood yum. restaurant once. Yum. I had some very... Yum. Ah, uh, extraordinary fish. Too extraordinary for me. <laughs> so, I, I think I would take about as kindly to eating rotted apples. Rotting apples. So I don't know. If you rot them correctly, you get um, apple cider. Oh, no. <laughs> now you've just changed everything. And this is apple season, man. You can't say that to me here at the dawn of <laughs> the apple season. <laughs> Have you been up to North Georgia to some of the apple farms? Oh, every year. But I haven't yet. And the, the cider tasting rooms at the apple yes. farms? Yes. Yes, it's yeah. so good. One of the best reasons to live in Georgia. And if you haven't come down here for apple season, you really should. Yes, all you people not from Georgia, North Georgia and apple season, forget um, you know, Washington State. Now forget that. Georgia apples are the bomb. They really are. Anyway. And we have tons Sorry. of variety. That's right. You just get some uh, fried apple pies. It's you're in heaven. Okay. When an animal dies, human, cat, rat, they get stiff, don't they? Yeah. Most all of their form, you know, is this just because of dehydration and also like, what is the word? um, Congealing of the blood? Excellent question. No, but that's an excellent question. It's actually a chemical reaction in the muscles. Hmm. It's called rigor mortis, or the stiffness of death. It doesn't last a long time. It only lasts for a couple days, maybe. But it starts a couple hours to, if it's cold, maybe two days after death. So it's, it's a chemical reaction. depends upon the temperature and other things. But your muscles, you don't need energy to constrict your muscles. You need energy to relax them. I never thought of it that way. Your muscles are primed. They're, they're like a cocked pistol. They're ready to go. Boing, and you can contract your muscles. You need ATP to uncock the pistol and reset it again. Hmm. The actin and myosin heads, when they're exposed to calcium, they ratchet. And it takes ATP to relax them, to separate them again. And because your body stops producing ATP when you're deceased... But there's lots of calcium in muscle tissue that can be spilled out, little vesicles and things that can break. You have calcium flooding your muscles and no ATP, your muscles tense up. Hmm. And you, you ever heard the, the phrase a stiff? Yes. <laughs> okay, that, that's a dead person. 
Oh, yeah. They're stiff. In the morgue. There was mm-hmm. a Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin movie from the 60s. I don't remember what it was. Something about it. I think he got speared with a swordfish. Just dumb. I just stupid comedy. I don't I never even <laughs> laughed at it. My dad loved it though. Um and right. there's one point, I think it was this movie when he's in a in a, a, a not a morgue, I think it was a funeral parlor, and it's all these coffins and he's trying to hide in one or something, and all these he opens it up and a body kind of falls on him and it's all stiff and he's trying to fight these stiff bodies. Well, that's because of rigor mortis. It's the the muscles tensing up, and as they all go through autolysis the muscles start to get flaccid and they they weaken again and the body will get rubbery again like it was before rigor mortis set in. So that's one of the stages of decomposition, <laughs> but it's not really decomposition. It's just the cessation of biochemistry. I put a review up on creation.com recently uh-huh. on a over a hundred year old textbook. It's called Hunter's Civic Biology. It was the textbook at the heart of the Scopes Monkey Trial, 1925. Ah, uh, knew that name from somewhere. And you know, lots of creationists have talked about the, the Scopes Monkey Trial, but I had never read anyone who actually did a review of the textbook, so I read it. I got a, a digital copy online, and I read the whole thing, and it was actually shocking how modern some of their science was and how primitive some of their science was. I mean, they didn't even know what vaccines were. Vaccines were over really? 100 years old at this point, but they didn't know what viruses were. All they that knew is, is you, if you took the pus from an infection and gave it to another person, you could prevent that person from getting the disease. <laughs> Yuck. Oh, that is horrible. <laughs> but that, that's what they knew. The lymph, the goo, whatever it was, you could inoculate people with it. And one of the things they believed at this time was something called tomain poisoning. Have you ever heard of tomain poisoning? It rings a bell, but I don't know. I don't know what that is. Exactly, it rang a bell for me too, but I didn't know what it was. But since I'm, I don't know, ten or eleven years older than you, I'm a decade older, and I'm closer to when people believe that than today. So a lot of people, young people today, would never even heard of tomaine. Well, they thought that these stinky molecules called tomains, and by the way, PTO, potomain is a silent P. Love those words. Uh, tomaine poisoning. <laughs> they have an amine. An amine like ammonia. Ammonia is NH4. An amine is an NH3, and the extra bond is connected to a carbon. So any carbon-containing molecule with an NH3 sticking off it is an amine, and they're generally really stinky. And they come from the breakdown, either naturally or through bacteria, of proteins. Because proteins are strings of amino, amine again, that root word, amino acids. And each one of those amino acids has an NH3 stuck on it. And they just make molecules that stink. And so the idea then was that tomains were toxic. And the reason you got sick when you ate something that was spoiled was because of tomains. But it's not true. Tomains are, it takes a high concentration of them to be toxic. What made Hmm. you sick was actually the bacteria that would infest your digestive system for a couple of days if it didn't kill you. And as food poisoning, it's not tomain, it's actually bacteria. Hmm. And of course, there's um, a couple of bacteria that do produce toxic things that will kill you dead in a clostridium family, like tetanus um, and things like that. Um, but most, most of the food poisoning is just bacteria growing in the food, not the products, even though the products are nasty. 
And that's the crazy thing about biology is that life is full of very long and very improbable molecules that quickly turn into smaller molecules. And our noses are designed to detect those smaller molecules and instantly to be repelled by them. Whether they're toxic or not, we say, ew. Oh, yeah. And this is a, this is a survival strategy. It is smart. So it's not always necessarily bad for you. It's not all of it going to make you sick. But our body is wired to avoid those substances. Just it, it, it kind of with the, the benefit that it helps us avoid the real bad stuff. Yeah, like you can't smell Shigella. But if you smell these these sulfur and and nitrogen containing compounds, it's probably got something nasty growing in it. So mm, you, right. it, it's like a you know God picked the thing that we could detect, not the thing you can't detect, which is the bacteria. <laughs> but they leave behind enough evidence that we're totally turned off. In fact, I was you know sitting outside of my front porch working for months now, and a couple of weeks ago I, I smelled something rotting. I was like, oh, something died under my porch. And the next day I smelled again. Next day I was like, wait a second. No, 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 no. That's, that's the, that's more captain. That's a natural gas smell. See, natural gas has no smell. They add a sulfur containing compound called mercaptan that stinks. They don't want to smell like flowers. They want you to say, ew, because they don't want you to go and take a deep breath <laughs> when you smell natural <laughs> gas. <laughs> right. And so I ran over to my, um, my meter, and I you know, stuck my nose up there and trying not to knock myself out, but I didn't smell anything. And I ran over to my, my neighbor's meter because uh, there's only one gas line between the two houses, so I could see their meter. And I ran over there. I didn't smell anything there either. So I don't know. So I looked under my deck, nothing. A couple of days later, I smelled it again. And then last week, the, um, the meter reader came. And he's walking up to my house, and I see him turn around and run. And so I walked outside and I went over to his thing and he's, he's digging a hole in my lawn. I said, what's up, man? He goes, I smell gas. I said, oh, is that gas? I thought something died. And so he dug all these holes in my lawn and they're sending the power company out or the, the gas company out. And I think they're going to have to dig up my, gar- my yard. Oh, my. Because a so tree root going probably wrapped right around the pipe. Oh, yeah. Yeah, all last weekend, every time I walked outside of my house or up and down the street, I could, oh, there's that smell again. So, yeah, some, there's natural gas coming out of my, my out of the ground in front of my house, and it has mercaptan in it, a stinky sulfur-containing molecule. Mercaptan. Yes. But, okay, bacteria, though, as they're degrading organic molecules, they produce hydrogen sulfide. Smells like rotten eggs. Methane, which has no smell. Ammonia, which is, you know, what the smell of ammonia is. And sulfur dioxide, which has no smell. And mercaptan. Captain, maybe. In fact, they make, um, between the natural breakdown and the bacteria, there's over 400 volatile chemicals that come out of, of putrefying things. And most of them are smelly. Things like putrescine. You <laughs> that know just what sounds put- like the worst. <laughs> yes. How about this one? Cadaverine. I just realized how disgusting a lot of the terms related to rotten, rotting are. Yes. <laughs> yes. They go hand in hand. <laughs> or scatol. Have you ever Ugh. heard of um, um, you know, hunter? Oh, I see some scat. And he's pointing at a pile of moose dung or deer dung or wolf or something like that. Scat is animal poop. Or scatol smells like poop. One reason we're turned off from it because it has a lot of scatol in it. It's like ew, gross. <laughs> yeah, oh, and yuck. it's also produced by rotting bodies. And mm. also. 
indole and indoles. Indoles are molecules that are very frequent in flowers and fruit. There are a lot of different smelly compounds that smell good in flowers and fruits, and indoles are one of the major components of that, you know, vanillas and things like that. Hmm. And so one of the things you hear a lot in, like, I, I read a lot of World War II history, um, and uh, multiple times people have mentioned the sickly sweet smell of decaying flesh. Ew. Huh. And it's a, a common phrase, sickly sweet. And the reason it's sickly sweet is because it's got putrescine, cadaverine, scatol, and flowers, indoles. And it makes your brain kind of twist in knots because it smells disgusting and good at the same time, and it makes you want to retch. Hmm. If it was just bad smell, you'd be like, ew. Right. Because it's bad, with a little hint of a sweet smell, it's just, it, it, I mean, it makes my mouth turn down just thinking about it. My nose wrinkling. Just, oh, I don't want to smell that. It's the worst possible combination of stinks. And one of the chemicals, and some of the chemicals, smell good. Yeah. Yeah. But cadaverine and putrescine come from the breakdown of amino acids. Amino acids, every single one of the amino acids in a protein has an NH2 on it. Did I say NH3 earlier? Oh, whatever. I'm scientifically ignorant, I guess. But take a cadaverine. It's a five-carbon molecule, and there's an NH2 on each end. Putrescine is a four-carbon molecule with an NH2 on each end. It's just natural breakdown product of amino acids, and they stink. But a lot of amino acids have sulfur in them also. Methionine and cysteine are two of the 20 amino acids, so 10% of amino acids have a sulfur in them. But homocysteine and taurine are not amino acids used in proteins, but they're amino acids used in biochemistry. There's a lot of sulfur molecules in our bodies. And when they break down, we get hydrogen sulfide, which smells like rotten eggs. We get methanethiol, which smells like rotting cabbage. Dimethyl disulfide, which kind of smells like garlic and dimethyl trisulfide which smells like rotting garlic those are the the simple molecules that come from the complex molecules that life is based on they happen either through natural random chemistry or through bacteria and it's just it's just awful and horrible and sickening and that's your answer to what happens when things rot wow you painted such a vivid picture. <laughs> I have all these smells and my, my senses are, are uh, tingling. <laughs> that is something else. The, the, the thing too is that since we did bring up smell, Rob, I have a, I have yeah. a question. I'm not sure if I want to ask, but okay. sometimes we get that. We get a, a whiff of something, but we're breathing through our mouths and yes. Is it true that we're not really smelling it through our mouths, but sometimes we can taste no. it too? Because sometimes the gag reflex is kicked in. Is that because we're confusing something we smelled with the fact that we were inhaling through our nose at the same time we were breathing through our mouths, and so our gag reflex is kicked in? Yeah, some, some of the molecules are simply diffusing into your nasal cavity. Okay. If you because hold your nose, my, fine, but if you're not holding your nose, you're probably going to get a whiff of it, even if you're breathing through your mouth. Because my sensation or the way my brain reacts, I thought that somehow it was at, like I, I, my mouth could taste it or something. But I was like, that doesn't make any sense. There are molecules that smell and taste. 
<sighs> and your taste receptors are very similar to your, your olfactory receptors. But the crazy thing is about smell is as soon as you get to a couple of carbons long, you can smell every single possible molecule between there and an upper limit of the number of carbons. Because once they're too big, they're not, they're not, they're solid or they're liquid or they're fats. They don't evaporate. And they're too small, like methane, you can't smell them. But once you get within a certain range, there are millions of possible carbon compounds. Whoa. You can smell <laughs> every single one of them instantly, and they all smell different. Holy cow. Yeah, isn't it true that our sense of smell is much better than taste? Yes. That but makes total sense. You don't have that many olfactory receptors. You don't. Huh. And you can so there's a there's a really fascinating book I read a long time ago called The Emperor of Scent. And a guy named Luca Turin, who I hope he wins a Nobel Prize, but he's trying to figure out how smells work. And it's going into the you know, the chemistry of Chanel number no. five, the original versus the modern cheap stuff that doesn't smell like the original. And he's going into this, the, the chemistry of the perfumers when they're taking whale vomit and, and which stinks and they're transforming to sm- something that smells good and how the nose works. And it doesn't see the old, the old idea was that the receptors in the nose were like a lock and a key. Something is shaped like this and a smell molecule comes and it fits. But it doesn't work because there's too many smells and not enough, not enough uh, locks. There's too many keys and not enough locks, and you can smell all the keys. And so what he's, he's suggesting is that through quantum electron tunneling, the vibrational spectra of the various molecules is registered by vibrational spectra detectors in the nose, etc. And it get, I mean, smell is complicated, and it's fun and cool and weird and amazing. And I guess that's how we can wrap up our discussion of decomposition with the smell yeah. of the decomposition. Incredible. Rob, that was good stuff. <laughs> it, 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 I did not realize how it, 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 thrilling it would be to discuss rotting on the podcast. Thrilling? <laughs> oh, yeah. My stomach is churning at the moment. Well, Half yes. our listeners have, have, have turned it off because they were so grossed out by what we were talking about. Uh, don't think thrills, think thriller, like that kind of thrilling. <laughs> All right. Disturbing. Uh, during the, um, during uh, the plague, there was one particular town. Oh, no, no, sorry. No, no, it wasn't the plague. It was during the Irish potato famine. One of the towns in Ireland, they had so many people that died that they just did all these mass graves and buried them shallowly. And people visiting that town for years afterwards talked about the stink Oh, that is horrible. Wow. The reason we put bodies six feet under is so that none of those decomposing gases make it to the surface. That is an excellent reason to do so. Yes. Three feet, two feet, one feet. It's not deep enough. Hmm. Interesting. Not enough time for for all the microorganisms to grab all the decay products and completely oxidize them and... That just the town was just gross. And I don't remember which town it was, but it was one of the northernish Irish towns. Ugh. Well, I do recommend after you're finished here with this episode, you listen to something to help cleanse your mental palate <laughs> and take out the garbage. I'm going to do that right after this episode. <laughs> so then thanks so much for joining us on this quest. If you found this episode interesting in any way, consider sharing it with a friend or a family member. 
And if you want to dig deeper into any of this subject, believe it or not, Rob found stuff about rotting to put into the show notes. And you can find links to the stuff that we discussed in this show in the notes on our website. They're available at nightowl.fm slash equinox slash 28 for this episode's number. Or if you're in your podcast player, the show notes are also with this episode in the app on your phone. And you should also check out Biblical Genetics, where Rob is talking about fascinating innovations and discoveries concerning the human DNA and ancestry and human genetics. Biblical Genetics is also available on Facebook and YouTube, where you can watch the videos and join discussions in the comments. And if you want to find me, I'm at JCS Darnell on Twitter. Until next time... Goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. You have been listening to Equinox.